Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite us to continue worshiping together this morning by having us open our Bibles to the letter of 1 Peter. We're going to actually go back a little bit and uh, begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 4, picking up in verse 17, and then we're going to concentrate our study this morning in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you look there with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's time, remember, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is living, it is active and abiding, and we just pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit and your grace towards us in Christ, that you would make it to live and act and abide in us in very practical ministerial ways for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been associated with Christianity all my life. I didn't say I've been a Christian all my life, but I've been associated with Christianity all my life. And so in some capacity, I've been in many churches, mostly Protestant, And within Protestantism, I've been in more than a couple distinct denominations, 
and non-denominations and their distinct theological bends, liberal and fundamental, and alas, thank God, more biblical. And as you can imagine, then, I've come across a pastor or 2,000. And in them, many pastoral types and trends and uh, philosophies of ministry. There's been the, the pragmatic pastor and the, the theotainer, the CEO, the virtual pastor, the megachurch, the aw shucks pastor, the comedic, the celebrity, the prosperity, and sadly, even the lost pastor. And I'm sure you could add to that list. And seeing it, uh, perhaps a, a sad confusion ensues for us as to what pastors actually ought to be. One of my favorite depictions of a pastor comes from Charles Spurgeon. He's a Baptist pastor in the 1800s. As he drew upon John Bunyan's Mr. Great Heart in the Pilgrim's Progress. Now Spurgeon, he writes this. He says, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Great Heart. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It is my business, best I can, to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and the trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heart ache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. That sound you just heard was the beating of a shepherd's heart. Beloved, hear me. However we may draw up a pastor, the Bible only knows one sort of pastor that pleases God. That's not to deny pastors the, the right to personality. That's not to deny pastors the right to contextualization done well. Uh, it's not to deny them the right to having a, a differing conviction of conscience on the basis of biblical texts. Uh, uniformity in pastoral ministry is not the goal, except in this, that pastors, here called elders in our text, are to serve above all as shepherds after God's own heart. So brother elders, are we such elders? Faithful men, if you aspire to be an elder, is it to this that you aspire? A church, as you are the ones who are actually responsible for appointing elders, for what are you to be looking when it comes to prospective elders? Is it this that we find in our text? Do we even know what we need to be looking for? Considering what Peter says, we are supposed to be as the church of Christ in this world and the connection between the church and elders here in our text, we had better know what elders are supposed to be. So let's come to our text and consider a few things. First, the elder's concern, and then the elder's companion. 
And then the elders' calling and crown. And then we'll close by looking at the congregation's clothing. So first, let's consider the elders' concern. Peter begins, if you look at verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you. We can just mark the word so there because it ties Peter's exhortation in our passage here to what just preceded it a week ago. What again was that? Remember, it's time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. At the household of God. Our Father is not fooled. He knows His own and He proves His own by affording us faith-authenticating opportunities to endure unjust trials for Jesus where the Judas or the Demas will depart to the world because of things like this for Jesus. The Christian, Peter's saying, will cling unashamedly to Jesus, even rejoice to be thought worthy of shame for His name. Such must be doing Christianity right by holding tight to Jesus and such are to define the church. Those who, in suffering as a Christian, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while continuing to be visibly and boldly true to Jesus. Beloved, remember, we are God's elect what? Exiles. His saved sojourners. We are far from home, but we're on the way. And though the way is hard, we yet go it together in the strength that God supplies. Now, what does all of that have to do with elders? Just this. That the imminent exam of the church's authenticity is a matter of accountability for elders. It's not at all clear in the text, uh, but Peter seems to be drawing here from a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 9 at this point. As you go and read that later on this afternoon, as you have an opportunity. But in Ezekiel 9, it's Israel... That's in exile. And God sets about separating those in Israel who are truly His people from those who may seem to be truly His people but aren't. And so in chapter 9 verse 6 of Ezekiel, God says this. He says, begin at my sanctuary. Again, that's not 1 Peter, that's Ezekiel. Begin at my sanctuary. And the very next words, again, in verse 6 of Ezekiel 9 are this. So... They began with the elders who were before the house. Do you hear the tie that binds there? God's given leaders are responsible for the spiritual makeup of God's exilic people. In this age, the authenticity of the church 
her security in grace, her earnestness in love, her faithfulness in ministry, her fearlessness for Jesus, her readiness for His return, her endurance to the end begins with the service, with the ministry of her elders. Please pray for us. Please pray for us. Here's something I want us to consider. Could it be that many pastors are what they wrongly are because we haven't rightly understood what the church is called to be in this age? Here's what I mean. If we understand the church to be at home in this world, if we understand the church to be an army at peacetime, comedians will, fought, will do for pastors. They'll suit for pastors. As will evangelical entertainers and celebrities and popes. But, if we understand the church as Peter understands the church, if we understand the church as elect exiles in the world and sojourners in need of spiritual steel, if we understand the church as an army bold in truth and love, necessarily warring every day for the glory of Jesus, well, perhaps we'll search out the Bible's kind of pastor. Beloved, when the battle lines are drawn up, they, they don't put chumps up front. They put champions. When Clemson gets off the bus. They don't lead with the walk-ons. They lead with Brian Brzee types. 6'5", 300 pounds, muscles everywhere. When Israel was going through the wilderness with temptations and trials and battles on every side, God did not give them a Jonah. However flawed they still were, he gave them a Moses, and an Aaron, and a Joshua. You get what I'm saying? The church, if she's going to be what she's called of God to be for His glory in this world, the church needs spiritual dudes in the pastorate, not spiritual duds. It needs those faithful men who will take on the work of ministry seriously and biblically and prayerfully. It needs those faithful men who for her, for it, for the church, are willing to have the fiery target put on their back. You see, it's the, the strike the shepherd and the, the sheep will be scattered thing in the mind of Satan and the world. So, as with Jesus... The church needs shepherds who can be willingly struck for the sheep and yet stand their ground unmoved. And this is not easy. Which is why the exhortation comes to keep at it. To shepherd after God's own heart. To keep on laying down your life for the sheep. God's True church needs true pastors of God. And 
True pastors of God appear to need true companions in the work. So we leave the elders concerned to be what God's useful church needs them now to be for the elders' companion. Really a sweet interlude here. So picking up verse 1, Peter exhorts the elders as a fellow elder, a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Good elders need gospel companionship in the work that's set before them. Now, I, I won't go into the difficulties just yet, but suffice it to say, attempting to pastor biblically, attempting to shepherd practically glorious as it is, and it is glorious, can be exhausting, can be trying, and can be very isolating. That's one reason I'm part of a, of a pastor's polo. I don't know how many of you are on Marco Polo, but I'm on Marco Polo, and I have a pastor's polo where friends of mine in ministry seek to help one another in the ministry because that help is needed. It's also why I thank God for my brother elders here who also share the good but weighty burden with me. They're companions in the ministry. This is what Peter means to be and to do for these elders here. And Peter, he can do us all one better. You see that Peter says he's a fellow elder. Pastor, Peter was an elder in a local church. And therefore, the great work of the pastor, which is where he's heading, is not a work of which Peter is ignorant. He's himself engaged in the pastoral work he's about to detail for these elders. So he really can enter into the elders' tasks. He can enter into the elders' joys. He can enter into their anxieties and into their fears as an elder for elders. He understands what Paul in 1 Timothy 3 calls the noble calling. Don't you see then that, that just as soon as Peter establishes this common ground, he breaks it up, ironically, to make their footing more solid. You see there that Peter is not just an elder. Peter is an apostle. Now, Peter is, is one who did life with Jesus. He did life with Jesus side by side. He witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. He witnessed the resurrection of Jesus to the assurance of the return of Jesus. And Peter then was uniquely endowed by God with a ministry of encouragement. Dear elders, he would say, the gospel you love and the gospel you preach, the gospel that you practice and the gospel you teach is absolutely, without a doubt, Certainly true. Don't hold back in gospel ministry. Don't give up. 
in gospel ministry? What gales of encouragement and life would be blown into the pastor's sails if they could but just lay their eyes on Jesus, crucified and then exalted to glory? They could just lay their eyes like Peter on his ministry and his love and his power and then his ultimate vindication in resurrection. And Peter just says here, I know that you can't do that. We're beyond that now, but it's okay. I got you. I loan you my eyes. I loan you what I have seen so that you can be sure of it in your own souls. And so you keep on eldering. What a companion Peter is indeed for elders who intend to be good shepherds. And so to the elders' calling. We see it in verses 2 and 3. Having encouraged them, Peter now comes to exhort them. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there's a a general exhortation that's then followed by some specifics here. We just begin by breaking down the general exhortation first. And the general exhortation is not to preach and then vanish. It's not to oversee the flock at a distance. It's not to depict a cross week after week after week, while week after week after week continuing to prefer my own personal ease. The exhortation here is to shepherd. If the biblical elder is to be anything. He's to be a shepherd reapplying how Jesus recommissioned Peter, if you remember that from our passage during the Easter season. Tending the sheep. Feeding the flock. Fending off predators. Retrieving the stray. Leading at a hand's breadth close to the flock. Laying down our Lives is to shepherd. And elders are to do this most solemnly and deferentially. The flock we're called to shepherd, you see in the text, is the flock of God. It's not our own, ultimately. You ultimately do not belong to us. Myself, John, George, Derek, we did not love and elect you from all eternity. God did. God did. And He, chief of all, even bled and died for you on the cross in Jesus Christ. And why? And why did He do that? But that we who rejected and despised Him might be born again. 
and justified and reconciled to Him and adopted into His family and sanctified, made more like Christ and held fast and preserved to the end and at last to be glorified by Him. We are the sheep of God's pasture. The beloved subjects of His free grace and mercy. So God forbid that any mere person, elder or otherwise, presume to take ownership of what Christ has possessed for Himself. Elders exist, listen, in the life of the church, not to gain a following for ourselves, but to strengthen the following of Christ. We exist in the life of the church not to be thieves, not to be hired hands, but to be under shepherds serving up a rich and steady diet, not of our anecdotes, not of our opinions, but of God's full and glorious word. As one put it, we're to so execute our office under Christ and in His name and in no other way but that He should be still really the pastor. Who's the pastor at the mount? Well, listen, you say, we believe that our shepherds are really good shepherds and we know they're good shepherds because they labor hard to get themselves out of the way so that really Jesus is pastoring us. That's the hope. That's our hope. It's that we shepherd you in line with His own heart so that He is pastorally and palpably present amongst us. And that's what we need. That's what we need. We need shepherds who give us the Word of Christ. We need shepherds who model the life of Christ. We need shepherds who put flesh on the love of Christ, who share the interests of Christ, who facilitate the culture of Christ, and so on. Because, listen, brothers and sisters, you are Christ's. We're just here briefly, however long, to lead you to Him as He would have us. Are we more and more the flock of God instead of the flock of men? It will certainly show. The measure of a healthy church, the measure of a healthy eldership is the degree to which they are manifestly and courageously biblical and Godward. So now note this too. I don't want you to miss those words. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Those words matter as they did earlier in verse 1. As Peter addressed the elders of the church as those among you. 
The elders were among the church. The elders are among the flock. And here Peter's saying the flock is also among the elders. You see it? In order to shepherd well and be shepherded well, shepherd and sheep need to be in consistently close proximity to one another. And this again is a point with far-reaching implications for pastors and churches. As it pertains to pastors, it will be nigh impossible to shepherd sheep we don't know in any meaningful way. So I've seen the celebrity pastor who fraternizes with his entourage only to keep a distance from the flock. And I've known the rural pastor who's never known a member to be in his home. And however acceptable that is in those churches, it only exposes such pastors as poor ones and such churches as self-injuring ones. They don't know what they need. They say, we need virtual church and we need preachers on a screen and we need CEOs who don't know me from Adam. That's wrong. You need real shepherds among you, in your life, knowing your heart, bearing your cares, discipling you patiently and earnestly and lovingly and enduringly to Jesus. That is, if you mean to be a meaningful part of a First Peter kind of church, Dig down, you'll see the desire is in our soul to have shepherds who smell like the sheep. And elders, is this not to be all our ambition? To reflect Christ's brand of personal, practical shepherding? This is why, for instance, we do pastoral visits, which I know you all love so much. It's so that we can be among you. It's so that we can get to know you. As in all we do in this vein, it's so that we can tailor gospel ministry to your needs and and to your ultimate good in Jesus Christ as those who are going to have to give an account of your soul to God. But we need to go on. As Peter comes to summarize the office and give it some of those specifics. All of that, he says, comes to this. The exercise of oversight. This is why elders are, in other texts, called overseers. Same thing. A pastor is an elder, is a shepherd, is an overseer. And if we take our cue then from 1 Peter, the basic idea, as we've just parsed out, is that elders, as shepherds, oversee the church's overall equipment for faithfulness to the God of the Bible and the call that He's given us as His church in this world to magnify, to make much of Jesus. Is our sheepfold 
being sufficiently equipped to function well together as God's spiritual house. Are we being sufficiently equipped to function well together as God's chosen race? His his holy nation, His distinctive people, His royal priesthood, His cross-bearing servant. I'm just working us through 1 Peter at this point. His living portrait of saving grace, Christ's visible body. That's the question emblazoned upon every good elder's heart. So they, they not only look out for the flock, but over them to lead them in increasingly powerful and lovely expressions of faithfulness to Jesus. And now as Peter specifies, we need to hear this, there is to be a certain Christ-like feel to the authority and oversight that elders really do wield in the church. There are right and there are wrong ways for elders to elder. And Peter points out three for us. He says, elders are to exercise this oversight, first thing here, not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, I hate to keep on picking on on Jonah, uh, but the elders are not to be like him in the work of ministry. Right? They're, they're, they're not to begrudge the work of ministry. More than a duty we have to do, it's to be a delight we get to do. Right? No one has to force me to go to a sporting event. Uh, I, I carry absolutely no inhibitions about it at all. But going to the dentist, is a different story. Uh, You might say going to the dentist is like pulling teeth, right? And no doubt, pastoral ministry can present itself like that. But, But a faithful eldership will markedly tackle even dentistry ministry willingly. The Son of God knew all the misery laid up in His ministry. And still from heaven he came and sought us. And by grace his under shepherds will maintain a similar will to love serving those for whom he willingly bled and died. And elders uh, will, will not only do this willingly but will do this eagerly. Not just with a right inclination but with a right Motive, as you see there, Peter adds, not for shameful gain. Reasons abound, unfortunately, for why people desire pastoral ministry. Reasons that are not right. That's why unfortunate. Reasons like power, and spite, and platform, and money. But faithful elders then must regularly crucify such motives to ministry. 
If you went to uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, as it seems, there's a lot of Ezekiel in Peter's mind as he's writing this particular passage. If you go to Ezekiel 34, you'll see that God condemned Israel's shepherds because they fed themselves at the sheep's expense. They grew fat while the fold grew sickly. But through Jesus, Peter's saying, the church's elders, the church's shepherds, there to be a wonderful departure from that. They're not to be motivated by what they can get from the flock, but as Jesus, they're to be motivated by what they can give to the flock. Serving Jesus, who is the greatest master, serving Jesus and His people well, is what's to put the, the pep into the pastoral step. That's the right motive. So, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then last he says, not domineering over those in our charge, but being examples to the flock. So, to be sure, Elders do have a derivative charge, a derivative authority over the flock. But it's not at all a license to bully the sheep. It's not a license to demand being served by them. It's not a a license, again, if you go to Ezekiel 34, to quote, rule the sheep, he says, with force and harshness. Instead, It's an opportunity to gently and patiently display exemplary Christ-likeness. Pastors are tempted to be domineering when they want to immediately get things done their way. When they lack the admittedly long-suffering patience it takes to stop and start and stop and start again and move the sheep along at a digestible pace for the sheep. When the shepherds forget that they too are sheep. Always needing a model of grace in the open field. The reality is that lording can betray a living that's not worth imitating. It can expose faithlessness in the Lord's way of leading His people to good pasture. Not just by His pulpit, we know, but by His practice. Not by being served, but by serving. Beloved, the elder's calling is again to brandish Christ's brand of shepherding. His will, His motive, His way, His love, His joy, His patience. In effect, it's to lead you in taking up His cross and following after Him. As God would have us, it's to bring near the fold, time and time again, the great heart of the chief shepherd. 
And if you haven't surmised this, can I just tell you, this is terrifically difficult. And so we come to the elder's crown. If all this were just a piece of cake, Peter need not give verse 4. It's because it's gloriously, gloriously, but undoubtedly difficult that he adds, and when the chief shepherd appears, you elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders who fulfill their ministry, enduring in their office faithfully, will be rewarded accordingly at the return of their extremely, perfectly, infinitely merciful overseer. Beloved, uh, what I'm about to say is not meant to be a pity party, but really just a reckoning with reality. Pastoral ministry done well is impossible apart from the grace that comes to it by faith in the promise that we see here in verse 4. On the hardship of pastoral ministry, one wrote about uh, 400 years ago that the labors of ministry will exhaust the very marrow from your bones, hasten old age and death. They are fitly compared to the agonies of soldiers in the extremity of battle. We must watch when others sleep. And indeed, he says, it's not so much the expense of our labors as the loss of them that kills us. Sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. How many truths we have to study. How many wiles of Satan. How many mysteries of corruption to detect. How many cases of conscience to resolve. Beloved, would it surprise you to hear that according to a recent survey that I would trust, 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours a week. 90% feel inadequate under-trained for ministry's demands. Although I'm in the other 20% on this one, 80% believe ministry has negatively impacted their families. 70% constantly fight depression. 70% say they have no one they consider a close friend. 40% report serious conflict with a member at least once a month. And alas, only one in ten will retire a pastor. Ninety percent give up or gas out. And that's in a culture where for the most part, they're not having to shepherd the sheep as Peter's elders are under the constant threat of persecution. And so another writes... 500 years ago, when they were being persecuted. Quote, except pastors retain this end in view. Verse 4. 
it can by no means be that they will in good earnest proceed in the course of their calling, but will, on the contrary, become often faint. For there are innumerable hindrances which are sufficient to discourage even the most prudent pastor. Lest then this faithful servant of Christ be broken down, There is for him one and only one remedy, and that is to turn the eyes of his heart to the coming of Christ. And then and there, as another points out, what joy will it be to hear Christ, he calls the prince of pastors, say, what joy to hear him say, well done good and faithful servant. Right? If it will be an aloe surpassing all pain to see and hear the many weave in a way guided to glory show up and say, this is the one, this is the pastor, this is he by whom I was converted, by whom I was edified, by whom I was comforted and established in the faith. What? If there's going to be so much joy in hearing them, what will it be to see and hear the praise of Him who took an exact account of every prayer and every sermon and every sigh and groan and tear in order to a full reward and a lasting one. You see, it is not a fading crown that Jesus gives. But for all the elders fainting, it is the unfading crown of glory. Their labors are not in vain. Interestingly, the word unfading here is a Greek word that refers to a flower that has this unfading red color called an amaranth. What's interesting is that that flower is also called a love lies bleeding. Pastors who lay down their lives for the sheep, who reflect the bleeding love of Christ for them, will inherit an unfading crown in peculiar recognition of the cost gladly embraced. And likewise endured for his sake. Brother elders, in light of that, let's run so as to win the prize. Well, let's close then. Let's close by considering the congregation's clothing in verse 5. Peter writes there, you see, likewise, you who are younger, Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. Now not just the younger, but all of you, elders included, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace what we need most of all to the humble. I think we all know that relationships even those forged 
by grace can, for a variety of reasons, be easily strained, and especially so under the strain of persecution. I don't know about you, but I tend to be much more irritable when I get hot. And so it is that when the world turns up the heat on the church, we're more apt to go every man for himself, trampling one another, where we haven't been trained in both biblical authority and humility. You see, Peter can't be clearer for us that Christ carries the ultimate authority in our lives. But he also cannot be clearer that elders have an authority from Christ that demands our glad obedience, especially insofar as it's exercised according to God's Word. And that, by the way, is why we have a likewise here. It's calling the young as a word to everyone in the church to be subject to their elders even as, likewise, even as their elders in leading them onward are subject to Christ. It's that we'd all have the good inclination to gladly submit to gracious authority in the church. But of course, here's the thing. An apex has slopes on either side. As they have authority, elders can be tempted on one side to pride, and then through pride to the abuse of authority. They can be domineering, as Peter has said, and then rebuked. But then there's the the other side, when on the other hand, elders keep themselves under the authority of Jesus, patiently and, and tenderly leading the fold by God's Word, and though it's incumbent then upon the congregation to gladly follow, they prefer, in some cases, to be maybe ornery, or maybe to be stubborn like Israel of old. Or maybe they see the shepherd's graciousness, his patience, and they are inclined themselves to abuse and take advantage of the elders' bleeding love. In other words, God's meant to give the sheep who need good overseeing shepherds, shepherds who will acquit themselves well in that ministry. But for the whole thing to work, pride has to die and humility take its place. We have to put off pride Put on humility. And so shepherds, we have to remember at the end of the day, we also are still very much sheep. And sheep, I just want to let you know, if you don't already know, I think you do, that you have shepherds who love you deeply here. And insofar as they follow Jesus, just encourage you and urge you to be exuberantly happy to follow Jesus through them and their leadership. 
As the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 13, let your leaders accountably watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning. For that would be, he says, of no advantage to you. Everybody's got a king in their own soul. Indeed, everyone tends to be a king in their own soul. Except those souls where Christ has become king. And there you find servants. And in a church of servants where the oil of humility is enabling our relational machinery to run smoothly and lovingly, God again will give us what we need most. He will give us grace. Meaning, He will go with us. And He will hold us fast. And in due time, He will give us the victory that already belongs to the church that abides steadfast and true to her calling in Jesus. So let's all clothe ourselves with humility. Unbelieving friend, Jesus calls you now through the message of the gospel. His sheep, he says, hear his voice and they follow after him. And so friend, Hear His voice in this. Turn away from your sins. Flee from the wrath of God that's coming upon the world and entrust your soul to this chief shepherd who laid down His life in love to save sinners like you and like me and reconcile us peaceably and forever to God. Do that now. And come and talk to me about it. One way or the other, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Beloved, however we may draw up a pastor, the Bible only knows one sort of pastor that's pleasing to God. I praise God for the elders we have. I truly do. And I want you to know that we love you and desire to love you better and better and better as we move along together. We want to love you more in keeping with the great heart and bleeding love of Jesus. So won't you just make it a point, please, to pray for us. We need it. And I'm not sure if I'm understanding that Hebrews passage rightly. I'm not sure you can do better for yourselves as we, as elders, seek to give you personally conducted tours to heaven and then safe travel to the river's edge. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and again ask that in your mercy and in your grace towards us, you would help us to feel now the shepherding power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Move us into a season of great ministry, not just as elders, but as a church, for your glory in this community, in this world, and in and amongst this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.